couple of weeks ago, um, Tom came from City Church in Canterbury and kicked off um, an idea for what we should look at in our preaching times on a Sunday morning. And, and it was this idea that um, the church is described in different ways in the Bible and, um, and sort of metaphors are used or ways of describing it, um, allegories, uh, types, and um, we were going to look at some of those metaphors that's used. And Tom himself used the metaphor of the church as a family. And um, Tom spoke on the church as a family, and so did John last week. The value of, like us here, the church. We're only an individual church, but we're more than a club. Yeah? Church is more than a club. It's one of the ways it's described. It's described as a family. And we looked at the facets of being a family, how that we actually share together and we understand each other's needs together and we look out for one another and we care for one another. That's the ideal. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't quite work as the ideal. It's with all the metaphors that are used. Sometimes it doesn't quite work as the metaphor suggests. But it's just a metaphor. It's just a way of describing it, helping the world to understand the church in a different light. You know, if you just looked at churches around in the world today, you get the impression of what the church is like. If you listen to the jokes and the comedies on television, if you, if you listen to the way um, that church is spoken about or even depicted in drama, you will actually get a false impression most times of what the church is really like. So maybe that's why we're using metaphors, to see what the Bible uses these metaphors, so they must be relevant, really relevant, to what God is trying to convey to the world. The church is also described as a building, a building which is being constructed, and uh, the keystone of that building is Jesus Christ, and all the other bricks laid whichever way, that way laterally, or that way laterally, or that way vertically, it all keyed from one stone, and the Bible is telling us that that stone is Jesus Christ. He's the keystone. So the church is described as a building, so actually putting in place the importance of Jesus, Jesus in whatever we do. Like in worship this morning, we make a lot of Jesus because he's the one that's made all this possible. And we cannot go any further without him. The Holy Spirit would tell us that, that without him we can do nothing. Without him we cannot do nothing. My remit this morning is to do the first in a couple of bits on the church as the bride of Christ. And I want to say this at the outset, I'm not seeking to put down any, any doctrinal pillars, as it were. Because here we have a way of describing the church, something that God has used uniquely <coughs> to describe what the church is like. And so we're just going to look as quickly as we can this morning at what the Bible says to actually bring this thought to the forefront. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John 3, I'm really not going to take up any points this morning, really, from the New Testament, because that's Steve's job. Yeah? So I don't want to whip the ground from under his feet. That'll be part two next week. My, my remit this morning is to look into the Old Testament and see what we find there. But we need to get a place to push the boat out from. All right? 
then to see what it says. So we turn to John 3 and about verse 26, 24, something like that. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into a Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John, that's John the Baptist, also was baptising at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. We won't go into that one this morning. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, interesting phrase for John the Baptist, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater and I must become Less. So John refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. We read there, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. So here you have a, that John is pushing the boat out. Because it seems as if his John's hearers lost it completely, what he was trying to say. No response, no reaction to what he said about Jesus being the bridegroom. But we know that every bridegroom has to have a bride, don't they, Ivan? Yeah, the last wedding here. Let's have some more, eh? Let's have some more. The bridegroom must have a bride. But it really doesn't say anything about the bride there. All it does is refer to Jesus as the bridegroom. So immediately it puts him in the light of an understanding that maybe they couldn't grasp, but we do need to grasp that this morning in some way, what the Bible's actually saying, because it's actually conveying to us unique values of the church. Unique values, a unique relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier, if we look at the impression we get of church today from the media or even other churches in different places, or maybe here. Uh, hopefully not. We get an impression which is wrong, and it gives us the impression of something which is dead and lifeless. That's the way drama predicts the church. But that's not the way the Bible depicts the church. The Bible depicts the church as a body of people which is full of life, full of joy, full of hope, Satisfaction, understanding about the past and the future, and an understanding about a hope and heaven and all those sorts of things, it actually firms up our understanding, and we call that faith. We call that faith. 
But God's trying to convey to the world, to the church, how important it is, how wonderful the church is, what it really should be like. And we're part of that church. So as John identifies Jesus as the bridegroom, we need to look a little bit further and say, well, John, being a prophetic guy, somewhat spoke truth, with a background of understanding from the past, who was bringing it into the present, identified Jesus as the bridegroom. So we need in some way to look for the bride somewhere and say, where is she? If you're a bridegroom, you must have a bride, or else you can't be a bridegroom, can you? Just to point this sort of situation. So we look from the Bible and we look into the Old Testament. But just before we go there, you know, those of familiar with church in past days used to sing a song. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Do you remember that? Remember that song? From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. So if we can look at the bride and the bridegroom, if we look at that, this metaphor and see what it explains to us. Throughout the Bible there are lots of interesting verses wriggling around in different places in the Bible which sort of bring this metaphor in a few, you know, into the fore. Some we can understand, some we, we find it more difficult to understand. And so I'm going to look at those which are probably a little more easier to understand this morning. A little while ago, we looked at Ruth and Boaz. And with all the difficulties, with all the hurt and the upset, we had to say, after we'd looked at the marriage of Ruth and Boaz in the Bible, there was a marriage made in heaven. Now that's a phrase we're familiar with. But it's only by looking at that story from the outset and look at it in the context of where God was working, could we really say that the marriage of Ruth and Boaz was a marriage made in heaven for a purpose. For a purpose then and a purpose today. And then Steve brought us interesting points about the genealogy of Ruth and Boaz and how from that line of people, Jesus was born. And so if we looked in the New Testament and read back of the genealogy, we could trace in the line of Jesus, Ruth and Boaz. Great, tremendous. So we had to say, in a sense, the marriage made in heaven. The marriage made in heaven. If we went back to the beginning of the Bible, um, we'd see a little verse wriggling there in the marriage in Adam and Eve. Now, they were the first people to experience marriage. They didn't have a wedding. They had a marriage, but not a wedding. But when Adam saw what God had done in Eve, he said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is another part of me. This is actually me in a different form. And so they called her Eve. He called her Eve. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And sometimes that phrase that is used to describe the church. 
From heaven he came and bought her to be his holy bride. Yeah? And so we say the church is in actual fact. When we look at all the facts, we look at all the, what the Bible says, the church is bone of Jesus' bones and flesh of his flesh. And we'll see just a little bit more that and a little bit later. Now, don't take that too practically because it's more spiritual than practical. If you get my meaning. It's helped to give us an understanding that we're uniquely united to Jesus Christ. And without him, we would be nothing. We wouldn't be in the family of God. We wouldn't be a child of God. So the church, marriages, Ruth and Boaz, Adam and Eve. And one we're going to look at last of all this morning is that's the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca. So in the Bible, the church is referenced as the bride. The New Testament reveals what is typified in the Old Testament, and it was John the Baptist who initially put a certain meaning into the followers of Jesus Christ as being the bride of Christ when he spoke of Jesus being the bridegroom. You cannot have a bridegroom without there being a bride. As a prophet, John the Baptist was beginning to shed light on the mystical wonder embedded, that's a computer terminology, embedded in the process of history. And another spotlight had come on as John speaks prophetically about God and man coming together in a most unique way. When John talked the way that he did, it was in answer to his own disciples raising a protest about Jesus baptizing as well as John. To them, that idea was presumptuous and unaccountable that another man should do that after John the Baptist was doing it. And when they came to John, this is the term they used about Jesus, that man, that man. So John turned around and he explained, that man is the bridegroom. That man is the bridegroom, there must be a bride. And so we look for that this morning. So how, generally speaking, is the bride of Christ in the Old Testament mainly projected? It's because the prophet spoke of someone, that man if you like, someone coming in future days that would be of immense worth and majesty, who would be like a perfect husband. The power of attraction would be his unparalleled beauty in grace, character and commitment. There's nothing like, a, nothing like a perfect husband because there isn't one, is there really? I've seen many women laughing. But as a husband, I have to say that. It's absolutely true. As much as we try. <laughs> it never works anyway. They never see the good points. It's always the bad points they see. And so, in a sense, in a sense, marriages have become the butt end of jokes, haven't they? In actual fact, the whole concept of marriage has been lowered in our day. And maybe looking at the church as the bride of Christ will help us just lift the profile and say this is an amazing thing that God has done. And I believe that's why so many marriages are under attack, as we say, because in its unique form, in its, in its best, it's a picture of Christ and the church. A unique relationship bonded together 
Right, Isaiah 54. Would you like to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 54? Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing. O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labour, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. So what are all those strange verses about? The nation of Israel was, in its ideal, meant to be um, like um, a bride to God in this way that it had a unique relationship with God. God has said, you are my people. In Hosea, we we, we see a different light on the subject of Israel because they forsook God. Hosea, well, it was given to Hosea to actually work this out in drama that actually Israel was a nation that had rejected God. They'd committed adultery against God. And so you have the idea of marriage and wedding in, in that scenario. But here it puts down, your maker is your husband. Now, we have to say, well, Isaiah 54 follows Isaiah 53. And just to explain quickly, Isaiah chapter 53 graphically prophesies the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which changes the course of history and redeems the fallen state of the world, giving life to the church, which is declared in this next chapter. So all that Jesus did, or the prophet looked at, he foresaw all that was going to happen in the future to Jesus, And he he said one thing, well, about this I must sing. (laughs) About this I must sing. And so he said, sing. Sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You were never in labour. So what is it all about? Well, this joy in a supernatural community. Joy in a supernatural community. We've had that this morning, haven't we? We've been singing about it. I didn't talk with Steve about the songs this morning, but we had this focus on joy. We had this focus on a supernatural community because the person who was unable to bear children now bore children more than she could understand. And Isaiah the prophet has a background of thought here. He said, I'm thinking about Sarah. She couldn't have children, but miraculously, supernaturally, she had Isaac. And that's important as we look later at Isaac and Rebecca. He's saying, 
Isaac was the son of promise. And from him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And they would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. The family would be so big. <laughs> the family would be so big, so great and wonderful would be the work of God. So great and wonderful and marvellous. But he also mentions the husband in this verse, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the law. So the word husband's mentioned again. And so it's saying, what it's saying really that through Jesus, something supernatural and miraculous is going to happen in terms of people and in terms of the way that I'm going to restore this world to myself. I'm going to take the mess out of this world. I'm going to restore it to its former glory. So you have joy within a supernatural community. Sing with joy. That's why we're joyful this morning. Amen. Whoa, whoa, we're joyful. Hallelujah. Second point, expansion and expectation of growth. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. The whole idea is of a man whose family's growing, a wanderer in the desert who lives in a tent, and his family's growing so much that he's got to enlarge his tent. And so here's the expectation of an expanding community. This should be the mindset of the church, us if you like. And so we look into the future. Will we be here in a year, two years' time, three years' time? We expect the church to grow. With the real power of the Holy Spirit and the honour to Jesus, the church will grow. If we don't give Jesus his rightful place, the church will not grow, and it will die. And so we're called to honour God through Jesus Christ, to lift up the name of Jesus, to praise him alone in our worship because we're an expectation of growth. Thirdly, confidence for the future, which is secured by an almighty husband, creator, redeemer. Verse 3, For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. That could have happened to Israel in a very real way, and it did partly, and it did happen in certain places and there. But God has given a greater purpose to the church, a greater purpose than Israel could manage because we have the Holy Spirit and we've worshipped God and celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we need confidence for the future which is secured by an almighty husband and creator because we noted in first one it had to do with the family and it had to do with procreation and it was identifying the family as a wonderful thing where God, in Jesus Christ, is identified as the husband. So all that supernatural community, all those people, are going to be bought because of Jesus, who is the bridegroom. Now, it uses the metaphor in slightly different ways, husband or bridegroom. And the Bible doesn't differentiate to give us a doctrinal pillar about this. What we're actually seeing is the character brought out 
the character of Jesus being brought out in different ways so we can appreciate who we are in Jesus Christ and what he wants us to be. So that's Isaiah 54. Shall I go on? The song that was sung symbolises entering into blessing provided by another's efforts. The comments of Alec Mottier. The song is about entering into blessing by another's efforts. The efforts were seen in Isaiah 53, what Jesus did. And if we read in 53, it says, um, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's in the hand of Jesus. So there's a song, there's a song being sung, and it's in expectation and entering into blessing provided by another's efforts. And what Jesus has done, we enter into and we enjoy as being part of his family. Okay, can you turn to Psalm 45? If you've got um, a little introduction line that before the psalm begins... In my Bible, it says, for the director of music to the tune of lilies. I wonder what that tune is. You know that one, Steve? No? Okay. Of the sons of Korah, a masculine, a wedding song. A wedding song, composed for a wedding. You know, a song for a wedding. And verse 1, I think, is a lovely verse. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. And when I read that verse, I thought of Helen's poem last week. When she read it, it was like the tongue of a ready writer speaking about a relationship that she'd come into, which is more wonderful than she could understand. And I told her words this morning. And prayer. My heart is stirred. It's so good. Is your heart stirred as you look at the church today? My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. I'm not going to read on for a minute because there's some wonderful verses there, and they uniquely, prophetically speak about the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. They speak about him as a perfect man, a majestic man, Someone to whom you could enjoyably form a relationship with. There's a verse I just want to look at. Verse 8, we'll begin from there. This is almost like the bridegroom um, preparing himself for marriage. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of strings make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honoured women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. I believe the daughters of kings are among your honoured women are the same as the bride in the second half of that verse, just described in a different way. 
the daughter, that's what, that's what psalms do very often. They say one thing and then they explain it afterwards. Daughters of kings among your honoured women. I think we could name many princesses today who are real and true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that daughters of kings are among the followers of Jesus Christ. Sons of kings are amongst the followers of Jesus Christ. But you see, we belong to a weird family where women are sons and men are brides. Yeah? Where women are sons and men are brides. But this is terminology from the Bible because it wants to convey to us that sons take the inheritance. So it means that women do too. It tells us that the husband, the, the men, are brides, which means to say that they can have this unique intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, which is described in the context of marriage. Real, true marriage, where men can be brides. Weird family. There's a big, long thing on, on Google. If you look up my weird family, <laughs> you'll see about 47,000 people telling us what their weird family is like. You can tell your people you belong to a weird family, can't you? Well, not really. It's the most unique family that we belong to. Most unique family. But it says there, daughters of kings are among your honoured women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. So it tells us that now the bridegroom is a royal bridegroom. And it tells us the one alongside him is the royal bride. Now, the gold of Ophir is probably the best, or was known as the best gold you could get in the whole world. And it's gold, the gold the king would have worn. And so what he is saying here is there's an equality here that the, queen, the, uh, the bride has the same gold as the king. That's what it's saying. The bride is wearing the same gold as the king. So, in other words, the church is honoured in equality with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You say, I just can't grasp that, I can't understand it. And maybe you can't. But here it gives us a tremendous picture that alongside the king is the royal bride in gold, dressed in the best gold in the whole earth. Now, you know, when we believe on Jesus Christ and we accept him as our saviour, he gives to us the best that could ever be given. He honours us with so much. He honours our lives with such goodness. We are made clean in his sight. All our sin is washed away. Our guilt is taken away. And we're made anew. And we're like royal brides. The church is like a royal bride. It's wearing the same gold <coughs> as the king. And that's the point, isn't it? Because if we look into the New Testament, we are seated with him in heavenly places, the same seat. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, the same family. There's another one with a twist. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ, and nevertheless, we live but we haven't gone through that crucifixion. Why? Because we're wearing the same gold as the king. Because we have the same experience. We, we, our lives have been given to death through Jesus Christ. In other words, 
all our suffering was laid on Jesus. He took it all. But we can actually say, he's taken it all. So there's nothing else for me to do. I can't do anything more. We have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Now, don't take that the wrong way. Remember, Peter disowns Jesus Christ. So it's not about our witness and about the way that we might react in the most horrible of circumstances. Jesus' grace overlooked Peter's moment of dishonour. But it's, what it's saying here, those who reject Jesus Christ will ultimately be rejected. <coughs> will ultimately be rejected. And then as a bit of it goes on from there, if we're faithless, he will remain faithful. That's a tremendous verse. For he cannot disown himself. For he cannot disown himself. So we're uniquely joined to Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world, the king of all kings. You see the concept of marriage there? Uniquely joined. We're actually espoused to Jesus Christ, the idea of the bride. The wedding. And what does espousal mean? It means one who is given to as an equal. One who's given to as an equal. Well, about the grace of God, with all what we are, we're given what Jesus has done has made us equal with him. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. One who is equal to him. Lastly, we'll just look very quickly in Genesis 24. It's a long story, so I can't read it all. But this is a wow story, isn't it? In Genesis 24, we have a unique set of circumstances that brought a man and a woman together. Abraham, we've heard of Abraham, I'm sure you've heard of Abraham. Abraham had a servant. Abraham, well, he was very old. He tells you that in verse 1. But something needed to be done. He had a son, Isaac, and we called him, I called him the son of promise earlier on because God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, but God gave something to come in his place. And so there was a picture here of God who gave his son. But you see, the picture can't destroy the real thing because Jesus was actually sacrificed for us. So the son of promise, Isaac, he come to the point in his life, 40 years of age, and he hadn't got a wife. And so his dad, Abraham, said to his servant, I want you to go and get a wife for my son. I want you to go and get a wife for my son. And so he sent him off. He took 10 camels and off he went. Before he went, the servant raised the question of willingness. And this is what he said. Now look, he said, you've told me to go and get a wife for your son Isaac. What if she won't come? And then Abraham said to his servant, because you've sworn an oath to me that you will get a wife, you're released from that oath if she won't come. So it depended on her willingness to come. It depended on her willingness to come. 
Abraham gave instruction to his servant that she was not to be pressurized into this, but he was also looking for a positive outcome. God will give you success, he said to his servant. God will give you success. She would have made any man a good wife, but God's seal of approval was the earnest of the whole mission. Okay, servant took 10 camels. Camels drink about 20, between 20 and 50 gallons of water a day. And the servant wanted a sign that Rebecca was the right person for the son Isaac. I'm skipping this story very quickly, you'll understand. But you know, when, she came, when, when the servant had said, what's the sign? If when I ask her for a drink of water, then she offers to give my camels a drink also, I know it's the right one. I know it's the right one. I know it's the right wife. And so the servant went off and he saw these girls by the well. Would you give me a drink? So he said, yeah. So she gave him a drink. And, um, and after a little while, she said, tell you what, she said, I'll give your camels a drink as well. I don't know how long that took us, but it tells us this. And I think it's a typical man. He sat down and watched her. <laughs> <laughs> he sat down and watched her. I don't know how many, how many journeys she must have weighed. I mean, if you, if you took the lesser amount, say 10, 10 gallons, say they drunk 10 gallons each, 10 times 10 is 100 gallons. It tells us she emptied what she had in her jar into the well first and then went off and done this. But that was a sign, you see. And we could make a lot of that, but no doctrinal pillars there today. But this was she was open to, and that was God's call on her life. God's call on her life as he relayed the experience of his mission and how that God led and guided him through prayer and interaction with God himself. She was open to God's call on her life. I wonder if you'd be open to God's call on your life today to realise that maybe you're here and God wants to speak to you. That's having a call upon your life. And God is still calling people to himself today. She was willing to leave aspects of her past life behind. You'll have to read this in the story for yourself because... She said she would go, and then her relations tried to stop her going and said, we'll just leave it 10 days. And so there was a bit of kerfuffle about this, whether she go now, 10 days' time. And so they said, let's ask the girl herself. And this is the phrase I just want to rest on and to leave us with today. Will you go with this man? Of all our talk about becoming Christians and following God and being born again of the Holy Spirit... I want to leave this phrase with you this morning. I want to say to you, will you go with Jesus today? That message was given through the servant, and this is what Steve said. The Holy Spirit fulfilled the work of the Father for the glory of the Son. Abraham was a bit like the Father here. The servant was something like the Holy Spirit and Rebecca was the bride. And so in a sense, the father sends the Holy Spirit who goes out to get a wife for his son, the son of promise, Isaac, 
and he has success in that. But the question was put to Rebecca ultimately in the end, will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? The call on your life today and my life is ever the same as it was yesterday and in this day of God's grace. Will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? And I just want to appeal to you, if you've never really gone with Jesus, she wasn't pressurised into going. No, she was relieved of that. It was down to being willing to actually give her life to a man she'd never seen. And the New Testament tells this about Jesus, whom having loved, whom having never seen, you have loved. And it talks about the faith we have in Jesus. It was said to Thomas, Thomas wanted to see the crucifixion marks in Jesus. And Jesus gave him that opportunity and said, yes, it is me. Yes, I have died and I have risen again. But put your finger in here. And Jesus said to Thomas, now you've seen, believe, but blessed are those who, having never seen, have believed. Those who never see, well, that's a tremendous blessing. And so the call on our lives is to actually be joined to a man we've never seen. That was Rebecca's experience. Well, I don't know what went on that tent that night. Attraction, love, engagement, and marriage, all in one go. But the union was made. And out of that union, God said, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we're blessed through Jesus Christ. So we see it's a wonderful metaphor, but at the heart of it is that you and I have such a unique, close relationship with Jesus Christ that outstands any traditional church, that outstands any impression that we might have, and it's based on love. And it's based on God's love for us. So, I don't know what you think. Do you think that the idea of the church as a bride is seen in the scripture? I think it is. Because some people say it isn't there. But I said, I'm not putting down the doctrinal pillar here. We're seeing something wonderful. God's creating such a unique and wonderful family. And we're part of that. Thank you. Father, we just thank you. We thank you, Father for our lovely Lord Jesus. Our hearts are stirred <laughs> as we think about him, the most excellent of men, and grace on his lips. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship you and honour you today. Help us to understand more, Lord. Help us to dig in your word and to find what's there for us. So we appreciate, appreciate again the coming of your Holy Spirit and the joy he gives for the opportunities we have and the family we belong to and what's out there in the future. Thank you, Father. We're not dismayed by the stories we read because it's all in your hand. For your maker is your husband. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you.